how you guys doing? This is Johnny the Bull Samboli, and you're watching Insider's Edge Podcast. Forget about it. Has been paid for by the WZWA Network. gentlemen welcome to the insider's edge podcast here on the wcwa network i'm your host as per usual with the most on the west coast california in theory great to be here again and here tonight i am uh, well this morning technically for me and this morning for him as well i have the opportunity here to talk to somebody that as far as me being a wrestling fan means a hell of a lot to me because when I saw my first WWE show here in Perth, Western Australia, many years ago, this was in fact the second pro wrestler that I actually ever got to meet just after Doug Basham. But, uh, it was a thrilling experience and to come full circle here today and have the chance to talk to this man right here, former one-time Impact Zone Wrestling Heavyweight Champion, two-time Heartland Wrestling Heavyweight Champion, former WCW and three-time WWE Hardcore Champion and former two-time WCW World Tag Team Champion in the Mamelukes. He is the one, he is the only Johnny the Bull Stamboli. How are you, my friend? It's a great entrance. Thank you for that. Um, uh, you know, when we were talking before this, you mentioned you met me when you were like 15 in Perth. I thought it was when I was with WCW, but you just you just kind of refreshed my memory there. It was when I was in WWE. So, right. Well, right. I wasn't injured then. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Then no worries. Um, well, there yeah. we go. We've uh, uncovered that one there. But yes, when you guys came to Australia in WCW, the Perth show unfortunately got cancelled. So yeah, uh, that, that was a real, real uh, right. kick in the guts. But I, I have had several uh, producers from WCW give me their apologies for that. So uh, okay, we're good. <laughs> we're good. Um, but Johnny the Bull, first and foremost, before you even got into the wrestling business, were you a wrestling fan? I was. I I grew up on uh, Ultimate Warrior, Hulk Hogan, Macho Man. You know, the, in the 80s, they had the cartoon that came on on Saturdays. I, I watched that. Um, my favorite was Ultimate Warrior because he pressed everyone. And that's why, you know, I tried to press everyone that I could. Press yeah. them, everyone I could. Because Ultimate Warrior used to do it. So, but yeah, yeah, 80s, I grew Probably from the time I was six to about 13. And then I started focusing on more on sports in high school. And then I got back into it, watching it again around 17 or 18. Right. So it was a brief, brief, uh, you know, it was, I, was, I only stopped watching for a couple of years, but I always, I always watched wrestling. Me and my brother used to practice on each other. He eventually put me in a suitcase and throw me down the stairs. 
<laughs> that's fantastic uh, yeah. I, I love that. I love those stories of when you're younger and uh, you know uh, wrestling fandom with your siblings is a reason to torture them so it's uh, yeah it's, uh, it's always fond memories cherished memories but uh, okay you, 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 you have had a break from watching you got back into watching it when you're in your late teens but um you know when moving forward into your 20s you know how did you go about trying to get into the business well when I was 18, 19, I worked out at this gym called, um, uh, it was called Main Event Fitness, and Sting and Lex Luger owned it. So all the WCW guys were, were in there working out. And, uh, and uh, you know, I met a lot of them, like Bagwell, DDP, a lot of the power plant guys like Horseshoe, yeah. who was Luther Reigns in uh, WWE. Uh, he was actually, when I saw him, I was 18. I'd never seen anyone look like that before. He was shredded, <laughs> tall. Like I, I never, I couldn't believe it. And then I met the Steiners. Uh, but DDP had a lot of influence on getting me to try out. He was like, you know, cause I, you know, I was 18 years old. I was kind of a bad kid. I was, uh, I was actually, no one knows this, but, uh, I had a little, uh, marijuana growing, uh, facility when i was 18 right so uh i got stabbed and robbed this was in atlanta i got stabbed here the scar fuck right there i stabbed here and stabbed here and i got stabbed here so that i got out of it immediately i was like yeah this is this isn't for me so ddp was like you know you got you got a great look kid you should go try out at uh, the power plant. So I went through the tryout after I healed up and uh, there were 20 people in my tryout and I was the only one that made it. I mean, that, that was usually the way it went, you know, whether it was Chuck or, you know, anyone else that yeah. try to weed out the people that, that, you know, didn't really want to be there. So I really wanted to be there. So, I mean, at the end of the, day sarge that ran the power plant you know i i broke my ribs hitting the ropes threw up we're doing thousands of squats a day push-ups sit-ups freestyle spr- i mean it was the the trial that they made us go through then was not is what they do today doesn't compare to because they they really want to break you because they want to make you they want to prepare you to be on the road and traveling uh, which is a whole another animal, but the, at the end they had me kicking my legs and my arms back and forth, saying I'm a dying cockroach. <laughs> and then, and then I got the invite back to go train for. I think I was on TV by nine months later, nine to ten months later. <laughs> wow! Once Paul Orndorff took it over, Paul Orndorff took it over. But a lot of people don't know this too. The power plant was more like a, you know, Joe Joe the assassin. It was kind of like a money grab for them because they would advertise and then they would charge people $250 cash. So there's no way to keep track of it. Right. And they would try to break you because they didn't want, they didn't want the office to know how many people were coming to try out. So they were pocketing that money. So they really tried to just really break you down and make you quit. Right. So <laughs> That's if very you got through that, then you were in. 
Wow, I'd never heard that story before about them pocketing uh, cash. It's yeah. really interesting. Um, but yeah, we've had, you know, Lash LaRue and Alan Funk on the show and Chuck on the show. And it, the same story rings true every single time. By the end, there's one, maybe two, if you're lucky, out yeah. of all those people, ex-football players, ex-Marines, ex, uh, you know, other sports fields. They can't, can't hack it. So to be able to make it by the end of it, that's massive props to you and all of the yeah. guys, you know, and, and it's... It, yeah, the proof is in the pudding because I believe everyone that came out of that, especially during that time, they 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 were gold. They they were all, everyone was great that came out of there as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Uh, and I want to get to your debut, and I believe this is correct. I could be wrong. Sometimes the internet lies. 28th of September, 1999 in Rome, Georgia. You debut on WCW Worldwide in a loss to your boy, Chuck Palumbo, who's looking a bit like Tarzan at the time. Uh, yeah, I remember. <laughs> You, you remember that? So please tell me a little bit about the first outing that you got to have, and it happens to be on WCW television. Well, it was wrestling Chuck, Chuck who, you know, is a, is a great friend of mine still to this day. We still take, stay in touch and talk. Um, but he was just practicing. He was just starting to use that super kick. So, you know, the match was going great up until – the finish where he kicked me with a super kick and it, it knocked me out. Like I was, I was out for two, two or three seconds. And, you know, luckily all you had to do is cover me because I was, I was out and we still joke about that because it's just, it, it was, it's better. It was later on, he, you know, he knew how to control it. Yeah. It made it look really good when he did it, but that day it looked good, but it was real. Not me. <laughs> Uh, F out. <laughs> That's a perfect uh, story for your first match, I think. And, uh, yeah. you know, when I talked to Chuck a few weeks ago, you know, we, we me and him did laugh about, because I've seen every episode of Saturday Night and Worldwide. So um, those early super kicks were very wild. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay. Uh, just uh, wanted to bring yeah, up the next... just, to, just to make it clear, sure. it wasn't all Chuck. I told him I'd like to be. I like to feel things. I told him to lay it in, you know, cause I don't like, I, I want to, if I'm selling something, I want to, you know, I don't want it to hurt or knock me out, but you know, I wanted to feel it. Absolutely. So we had that conversation before. Yeah. But so he was going loose with it. <laughs> That's exactly right. And uh, I know it's the next match that you had, and this is like really interesting. Cause I remember during this time period, there was a major influx. This is like September of 99. This is just before Vince Russo comes in. Major influx of power plant guys being brought up by Jimmy Hart to be on Saturday night and worldwide. Um, you're one of the rare ones, though, at this time period that actually soon after you, you show up for, you know, with all these other power plant guys, you end up going on to, you know, uh, Nitro and Thunder with Vito but so the other match you had before all that took place was the 26th of October 99 on Saturday night in San uh, Bernardino in California against Elix Skipper um, so two matches out of the gate then all of a sudden Vince comes on board Vito is hired he comes over from ECW uh, next question was when did you first meet Vito and whose idea was it to do the Mamelukes and put you guys with Tony Marinara? It was uh, Vince Russo's idea and Vito's, you know, good friends with Russo. Yeah. Uh, I, I wasn't involved. They just asked me if I wanted to be a part of it. And, you know, that was my way in. 
So, and I already had the Johnny the Bull. I, I came up with the Johnny the Bull character because I like Rocky one where he had the leather hat <laughs> yeah. and he bounced the ball when he walked out. And then, of course, I'm a tourist, so it's my birth sign. So Johnny the Bull. And then, you know, I like mafia movies. So, I mean, that's kind of how. And then I had the De Niro face, you know. <laughs> so uh, they, I mean, it just it made sense. So they asked me if I wanted to be a part of it. I was like, yeah, absolutely. So sign me up. And then, you know, before you know it, uh, we're tag team champions. Yeah, it was a real whirlwind for you whilst all the other power plant guys go through several months of of working with each other on Saturday night. I just thought it was interesting that um, out of the bunch, you got picked out first by Vince Russo to be put onto TV. Um, and yeah, I thought this little story was really entertaining. You're feuding with Disco and Lash LaRue. Uh, one thing I wanted to talk to you about was that there was all these backstage things with you and Vito that they would uh, put together. And one one thing I always I loved very much was uh, there was a scene where where you and Vito, are, I guess you're in a hotel room, and and Disco has probably you know set this up beforehand with these girls that you're cooking some Italian food for the girls, oh, yeah. and you're complaining to Vito about the onions. He's putting too many onions in the sauce. Yeah. And he, I just, when I watch this back, right at the end of the segment, you're both tied to the bed with the sauce all over you. You're saying over and over again, and I thought this is how the segment was going to end, and I wish I was in the room beforehand to say this is the final uh, sentence that should be in this segment. You're saying, Vito, Vito, and he's going, shut up, shut up. I really wish you said, Vito, you were right about the onions. <laughs> <laughs> I that would have been good. That would have been perfect. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember what ended up being said, but, oh, man. I, I don't remember either. I, don't, I remember the scene, but I don't remember the actual verbiage. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah, but that um, was fun. They, they, you know, they, we did a lot of good things with that. Tony Marinara, you know, he unfortunately he had the, you know, he got the concussion. I don't know. Did you, did you see the segment where we were shooting live and he, he just passed out? No, I mean, I've seen everything, but I don't remember um, what happened. So we were shooting a segment. It was me, Tony Marinara, and and uh, Big Vito. And I think, uh, I think, uh, was it Mean Gene that was, maybe it was Mean Gene that was interviewing us. Hold on, let me close my door. <laughs> no worries, bro. So it was me and Gene that was uh, interviewing us, and then Tony just had like a, a pretty bad concussion in a match earlier. Uh, so he's standing there with us, and he just fell out. He just passed out. Oh shit! So that was after that. I mean, that's that's kind of that's why he disappeared because he had like so many concussions back to back. Oh, okay. You know, just passing out. That's why. That's why uh, you didn't see him part of the team anymore because they, they were afraid to, you know, allow him to take bumps and rest because he took some crazy bumps. Like he was, yeah. he's a good wrestler. So, but he took some crazy bumps. That's, that's why. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because, yeah, I was hoping to uncover that uh, in this interview. And now I know why Tony ended up leaving WCW and he sh soon shows up in ECW under the name Tony Mama Luke, which I think is a nice touch. Um, yeah. Uh, 
the 19th of December, 1999 at the MCI Center in Washington. This is just huge. You're wrestling on Starcade. I think that's just an amazing accomplishment very soon into your career. You're working with Disco and Lash. You get the win. How did it feel so early in your career at this point to be on Starcade? Well, you know what? You know, going back to how I, you know, said I got stabbed and all that, and wrestling really made a man out of me. Like, it taught me to to set goals and to follow through because I, I didn't have, really have a father figure growing up. It was just me, my brother, and my mom. So, you know, certain things I, you know, I just didn't learn. But so after, once I got into wrestling and I set all these goals and I accomplished them and it, you know, I've, it, it made me feel good. Once I got to that point, we won the belt. I mean, it was euphoric. Cause I thought like at that point I made it like, this is it. You know, I, I was 20, I think I was 19 or 20 years old. Wow. So to be on TV, to come where I came from before, you know, always getting, my granddad was a chief of police of the area that I was in. So I was constantly racing my cars, getting arrested, you know, but I would get bailed out because, you know, they were, they were like, your granddad's Lewis Massey. He's a chief police. Why didn't you tell me? And I'm like, well, I'd, I'd rather go to jail than tell him. <laughs> it was nothing major, no, no, nothing major, but it was just like so many things started happening up until the point that I got into wrestling, that wrestling really turned my life around and, and made a man out of me. So once I got to that point and I had the belts, because everyone doubted me too. I was like, yeah, I'm going to be on TV one day. Uh, and, you know, they, they see people coming to the power plant come and go. It's like a revolving door. You know, everyone says they're going to be famous, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I got doubted my, up until that point. And then now start people start the same doubters that were, you know, that doubted me were now my best friend. Of course. <laughs> so, so yeah, it was a good feeling all around. Absolutely, man. That's a, such great vindication for somebody. You know, I, I, for, for many years, a lot of my, oh, some of my friends didn't believe in me that I would ever be in a, the lead singer in a rock and roll band. And eventually I finally did have that first gig and they all were there. So it was yeah. vindication for me to prove to them that, hey, I, I could do it. It just took me a while to get there. Um, yeah. So that's cool, man. Deal. It is a great feeling. And, uh, you know, so you, you wrestle on Starcade. You also, you work with the Harris Brothers, uh, uh, sold out 2000 in Cincinnati, Ohio on January 16th. But this leads to, as we've alluded to, two days later, January 18th, becoming the WCW Tag Team Champions after defeating Crowbar and David Flair on Thunder in Evansville, Indiana. So that is just awesome, especially for Vito as well, right out of the gate. It's, you guys have been together a few months. You're the Tag Team Champions. I want to ask you about your fondest times with Vito and, and what you feel you learned the most from him. Well, I learned that was some of the funnest times, even though it was, it was, it was all new to me. Um, but, but Vito taught me the psychology because, you know, a lot of guys, they learn, I, I think I learned the, the opposite. So a lot of guys learned, by coming up and you know in the you know underground you know uh, 
backyard stuff or just the indie scene. And then they work their way up, whether they go overseas and eventually they're on TV. So they've learned psychology or if they're like second generation or third generation, they've grown up in it. So I didn't really have that going for me. So Vito really taught me the psychology of when to do this move, why you did it, you know, whether you're working a body part or, you know, so that was probably the best thing that I learned from him. And it, and it, and that went on to, you know, WWE as well. I mean, it always, cause my, I think my last match was 2015 against hurricane as when I was relic, but we'll get to that later. But yeah, it really, you know, it really taught me the psychology of a match because a lot of, I came in, went through the power plant and I was straight on TV and I'm learning on the fly. Like I'm learning as every, every match I'm, I would go back and watch my matches and I would watch everyone else's matches and watch what, what looked good and what didn't look good. And I would try to work on that. I would run spots at maybe a house shows or I'd go back over to the power plant and I would work on, you know, something that I didn't like to try to make it look better on TV. We'd record it, watch it over, record it, watch it over. So, I mean, there was a lot of work behind the scenes going into it, not just going to TV and, and, working I would go I would always go back to the power plant and practice even though I didn't have it wasn't required for me right awesome yeah well that's a great way to go about it and as from my perspective as a fan when I was watching at the time to me uh, I guess it's it's kind of like a credit to you and your ability because I I never noticed anything that like you were really green and that yeah you were very inexperienced and you were learning kind of on the job so like as far as I'm concerned as a fan like you know you, even when you you're still learning along along your journey it was seamless to me I didn't notice I I thought you were great the whole time uh, <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. You know, Vito, Vito used me as, you know, because he was, you know, he, he's been in the business longer than me at, at that point. He's a veteran. So, and I was a young guy. I can, you know, you only have a certain amount of bumps in your life, in your career with wrestling. Yeah. So, you know, I was, I thought I was indestructible at that point. Nothing could hurt me. Uh, so I'll go out there and, and, and take all the bumps and then Vito would come in and clean house. So I would, you know, I would take the bumps, fight back, and then make the hot tag, and then he would come in and clean up. Yeah. Cool, but man. I, yeah, you taught me a lot. That's great. Um, and uh, th there's a time period where you got, you know, I'm skimming ahead a little bit here. Uh, you two are split up during this period as, um, you, you know, you two and – you two are made co-hardcore champions. Vito becomes yeah. a sole champion on the June 9th edition of Nitro in Billings, Montana. How did you feel about splitting at this point? Were you confident to go out by yourself at this point? And how did you feel about that? Because I feel like the Mamelukes probably shouldn't have been split this early. But then I was, again. Yeah, I, wasn't, I wanted to stay in the Mamelukes and keep it going because there was so much, you know, it had so much potential. Um and I was still learning the character. I wanted to polish up the character, my accent, my you know talking ability. Um, but we never got we never got to to see that come to you know fruition. Absolutely, yeah. Cut off early. Yeah, that's what I thought too. I, I, I knew I was ready. I mean, I'd wrestled enough singles matches up until that point. 
but I, you know, there was, there's still a lot of work to be done and a lot that I was learning. So, I mean, it, you know, I want, I, I wanted to keep the Mamelukes going as long as I could. Yeah, one of my favorite tag teams, that's for sure. Uh, I want to again move forward to July 3rd, 2000. You defeat Terry Funk on Nitro in Charleston, West Virginia. That's a, that's a pretty big honor to have the chance to work with Terry Funk. Could you tell me a little bit about working with him? Terry was, you know, he was he was awesome. He, I mean, he I learned a lot from him in, in regards to psychology. Uh, he was a little crazy. But you have to be, he was a hardcore legend. You have to be, you know, a little crazy to be able to do that. Um, you know, when my when I won the belt from him, when we had that match where I got injured, you know, you got to keep in mind, you know, a lot of people ask me why I did that move off the top rope where I tore my bladder. Um, you know, I was 21 years old, I think, at the time. And I thought I was indestructible. Um, when someone asked me if there's something I could do off the top rope, as Terry asked me, he goes, what, what do you think you could do off the top rope to the floor? And I was like, what can I do? What do you want me to do? I'll do it. You know, I was so hyped up about, cause I knew that I was going to win the belt. So I wanted to make it special. So I was like, I think, cause I'd been practicing the leg drop. So I was like, I can do a leg drop off the top rope to the floor. And everyone's like, are you sure? And people will even warn me. I think, I think uh, uh, Alpha Funk warned me, a few other people warned me, and I'm like, no, nah, I got this, I got this. So the thing is, if I would have peed before I went out, like, I had a full bladder. And I didn't oh, think about shit, it. okay. Yeah, so if I would have peed before I went out, and uh, I, I, I probably would have injured myself a little bit because it shifted my pelvis. Oh, the way that right. I did. It didn't break anything, but it just kind of shifted my lower back and my pelvis. I probably would have been injured in that regard, but I, I wouldn't have torn my bladder. It was a partial tear. So, and I, I, I had the black slacks on, so I, I pissed myself. Right. But I thought I broke my back. At, at the time, I didn't know I pissed myself. I just rolled over. And I was like, Terry, I'm hurt. And he's like, what? Because <laughs> we're at my company. I'm like, I'm hurt. So I tried to stand up and I fell down and then he rolled back in the ring and he was like, well, let's just cut out the, two, the, the go home. We'll cut out, go home. Let's go straight into the finish. So I picked the chair up. I hit him in the head with a chair and DDT to one chair, covered him and they carried me out on a stretcher. And then I woke up. I remember trying to pee and I peed blood. It was super painful. And then put me in an ambulance. They gave me some medication. And then I woke up in the hospital and all the boys were there. Kevin Nash, Goldberg, everybody was there. They thought like I was, you know, broke my back. Fuck. So I woke up, I had a catheter in me and uh, luckily I didn't require surgery. Uh, a week later, a week later I was out of the hospital and that happened. At, yeah. That was in West Virginia, I believed. And, um, the, uh, one of the nurses got fired for, uh, lifting up my, my, uh, blanket and staring at me naked. Really? Yeah. I didn't know I was all peeled up. I didn't know. And, um, the head nurse came in and she's like, has anyone been here? 
you know, to tend to you. And I was like, I don't know, some nurses came in here and were lifting up my blanket or something. And I was like delusional and like, you know, on pain pills. And they're like, really? Because that's, they're obviously not supposed to do that. So they got fired. My mom wouldn't let them work on me there at West Virginia Hospital. She wanted to fly back to, wanted them to airlift me back to Atlanta. Because Atlanta's got really good hospitals like Emory, Piedmont Hospital. So they brought me back to Atlanta. And uh, a week later, I was out. And then I really thought I was indestructible then because I, I didn't, I didn't require surgery. I bounced back from it so quick. <laughs> so, but yeah, the, the, the thing with Terry Funk, it was up until that point. Yeah. Oh, a lot of people don't know. I broke his orbital too. Cause I, the move was top rope leg drop on a chair. Cause after I just pile drive them on the, it, it, it was a little excessive, but I pile drive, I moved the mats back put the chair on his face, ran in the ring, hit the ropes, dig the leg drop. I broke his orbital. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize that either. And then later on after that, Matt uh, Goldberg came up to me, you know, later on, I think we're at the Australian event. And he was like, it was just after he wrote his book and he wrote about me in his book. He was like, he called me a tough, you know, mf -er. The fact that I got back in the ring and I was able to finish a match after an injury like that. Yeah, um, wow, man. I'd, I had <laughs> I had no idea how serious that ended up being. Um, so you have a little bit of time off, I assume, before you come back to join the Natural Born Thrillers. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of the idea to be, be put with this elite group of guys? Well, you know, we, we all trained together in the power plant. So it kind of made sense because they didn't really know what to do with me yet because they, you know, I just came back from the injury. And so it, it was kind of like a transitional period to go back, you know, to work my way back up. I think after that, they put me back with Vito, if yeah. I remember correctly. So, yeah, it was a good transitional period. I, I got to work with my buddies, you know, Sean O'Hare, rest in peace, Chuck, Mike Sanders, uh, you know, um, uh, Reno. Yeah. Uh, he's a tough MFR too, Reno, by the way. I still talk to him every once in a while. Uh, but no, it was it was fun. You know, the we, we knew each other. We were all friends, good friends with each other. Because we, you know, been through the trenches together, the power plant. So we're, you know, we had that bond. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and Kevin Nash helped, out, uh, helped us out a lot. Like he I loved the young guy. Yeah, so Kevin Nash was was awesome. And, and, and instrumental in getting us like all that TV time. Like he helped a lot with that. That's cool. And uh, at this time, I wanted to like do not like word association, but I'm going to name each member of the thrillers. And I just want you to just, you know, tell me a little bit about them and, and how you feel towards them or if you have any stories about them. Uh, first and foremost, let's go with Chuck Palumbo. Chuck Palumbo was. Uh, probably one of the funnier guys that I, in the power plant, uh, but also really smart. And uh, he could fix anything with his hands. Like he could, yeah. it was a, a very impressive. Like he was always constantly working on Paul Orndorff's car. We, we would pull up to the power plant. We'd see Chuck's 
legs underneath his car. <laughs> if Paul Orndorff, you know, realized that how good of a mechanic he was. So he put it, you know, he kind of capitalized and leveraged that, you know, you know, he would, he would basically use TV as his motivation for Chuck to, to do some extra things for him outside of the wrestling ring. Right. And kind of dangle TV in front of his face. (laughs) Uh, But no, Chuck and I, we've been everywhere together. Um, even after we got released from WWE, we went over to Japan and, you know, I went over to Japan, all Japan wrestling as the fake Muda. Yeah. Uh, my buddy Troy Andres was doing the fake Muda before and he tore both of his ACLs. So um, uh, he called me up and asked me if I wanted to be, to do it. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll do it. So then I went over and they, they made all these elaborate costume Muda costumes for me. And then uh, once I had that match with Muda where they demasked me and then made the announcement it was Johnny Stamboli. And then that's when, you know, I brought Chuck over. I asked him if he wanted to come over and be my partner. So then we formed the Voodoo Murderers over in all Japan, which was fun. We got to work all, you know, Kea Mossman, Umanga, which was Eki Fatu. Yeah. Worked them, you know, hundreds of times. And then Chuck and I went over to Italy and then Mexico for CMLL. So we, we, for some reason, always, just like he was my first match, we always, for some reason, always gravitated towards each other. So Awesome, bro. Yeah. And you two seem like quite synonymous synonymous with each other in your careers. Um, The next guy I wanted to bring up was the one and only Mark Jindrak. He's another one. He's, he was, he's, he's one of my best friends still to this day. We really hit it off. We're in the power plant. Um, you know, we both lived in Atlanta, Georgia. We had the same group of friends outside of wrestling. So we, we really, uh, you know, we really liked each other. Like we were boys. Um, He's up in, I think he's up in Syracuse now with his wife and his, his kid. But he's another one that I gravitated to. You know, when, when we went to Mexico, not a lot of people know this, but when I went to CMLL and then Chuck got hired back to WWE and I needed a partner. So I called up Jendrak. I was like, hey, you want to come be my partner in Mexico? And he was like, hell yeah. So we yeah, obviously we need to make him Italian. He's going to be my partner. So that's how he was called. That's that's how he got the name Marco Colion. Yeah. In Mexico. And then they wanted me to move to Mexico and stay in Mexico. I didn't want to do that. And he ended up staying for nine years and made a, a, a big run out of it and was a heavyweight, the only American heavyweight champion at CMLL. But he wouldn't have made it there if I didn't. <laughs> so. Excellent, bro. Yeah, no, he has had the shoot. <laughs> yeah, no, he has had quite a lot of success over there. Uh, that's awesome, bro. The next guy I wanted to bring up, uh, may he rest in peace, Sean O'Hare. Man, that's a, he's one of the toughest guys I've ever known. I thought I was tough. He, uh, you know, another, another one that I was best friends with at the time. We traveled together. We went to wrestling camp together. We had the same group of friends in Atlanta. Uh, he 
I've seen him getting get in bar fights with multiple people and 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 control the fight. Like three or four people, he's knocking them out. Like I've never seen anything like it. So I mean, we would always room together. So we've probably torn up 20 hotel rooms because we would get in there drunk and start wrestling each other. <laughs> and he would ultimately end up winning. He'd have me in an arm bar or something, and I wouldn't tap. He's like, tap. I'm like, no, I'm not tapping. I'm like, F you, I'm not tapping. <laughs> Finally, he would just get frustrated and let go. And then, you know, and he, you know, he got the best of me, but I'm like, is that all you got? And then I would, you know, we we're like brothers. You know, I'd jump back on him and we'd go, you know, we'd tear the hotel up. I mean, it was back then, you know, WCW was, they covered all the costs, but, you know, I'm sure we got heat from it. But uh, now he's, he's another one, one of the toughest guys I knew. And, you know, it's sad how he, you know, how he left, he left everybody, uh, you know, you know, I don't want to get into the details of it, but, you know, suicide is, is no joke. Uh, and I think he held a lot of stuff in that if he would have, you know, let it out earlier, that he would still be with us today. But, you know, rest in peace, Sean O'Hare. But he was one of the toughest guys I've ever known. Absolutely, bro. Yeah, without a doubt. I, I always thought to myself, that is one guy I would never mess with. Um, he had uh, so much potential. So much potential. Absolutely. And when he came over to WWE, I was very disappointed with how they handled the whole thing. Yeah. Um, anyway, moving from on from Sean, uh, Mike Sanders. Mike Sanders was funny as hell. Like he was, you know, pretty much the life of the party everywhere we went. He was great on the mic. He uh, was a good worker. Worked hard. Just like everyone that made it through the power plant, we all worked hard. He wasn't, he wasn't the best worker, but he was, he was solid and he was even better on the mic, which, you know, elevated him to the position that he was at. He was, uh, he wasn't as good as a friend to me as Sean, Chuck, or Jendrak, but he was, you know, you know, we all had that bond, that brotherhood bond from being in the power plant. But yeah, he was, he was talented. He could have, he could have, if, if WWE would have taken him on, he probably could have done some big things because he was just so smart in the industry. Absolutely. That was another missed opportunity. Uh, two more to go here for Word Association. Sean Stasiak. Sean Stasiak was, I didn't really, you know, I liked him, but I didn't really understand him. Uh, he had a quirky personality. Um, it was a, he was a good worker. Obviously, he was second generation. Um, he, he was just, he's probably misunderstood. Uh and he, you know, he left WWE because he was recording people, conversations with him. And that got him a lot of heat. So when I heard that, I just kind of kept him at arm's length. You know right. what I mean? So and he, he, always, he always had this weird joke about gorilla, like something gorilla. He'd always go gorilla. So I don't, I, don't, I mean, he's a smart dude. He's a chiropractor now. Um, but I just never... I mean, I liked him. I just never really clicked with him. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. And the last one, of course, Reno. 
Reno was another tough one. Like he, he was, uh, he was, you know, we hung out a lot, obviously power plant. And I, I wish, I think they could have done more with him, me and Vito. I think that would have been a good trio. Agreed. You know, in WCW, uh, you know, he was another one. He was a great, great worker, great execution. He would snap his moves. Um, but in real life, he was tough too. So it's just, we had so much talent at the end of WCW that WWE really could have like, you know, catapulted off of, but I don't, I don't know. I don't You know, WWE is very political. And if you piss, if, if one person, if the right person doesn't like you and they're in Vince McMahon's year, you're not going to last long. So it's a shame that, that Reno didn't do more in the industry because he was a diamond in the rough, just like all, all of us were. We're all diamonds in the rough. I agree. Lot, I think all of us were handled this correctly. I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up now we're through with talking about the, uh, the thrillers WCW comes to Australia, as I talked about earlier, didn't get to see WCW in Perth, which to this day uh, destroys my soul. But Sydney, New South Wales, October 7th, you face Goldberg. I just thought it'd be interesting to bring up that one. I know it probably didn't last very long, but Bill obviously had a lot of respect for you. Um, you know, how was it working with Bill? And please tell me, you know, what your fondest memories of the trip were. So that, what, what trip was this again? Uh, it was when WCW came to Australia. Goldberg was great guy. Great guy. I, I watched him. Him, You remember Chase Tatum? Yeah. He was part of the No Limit Soldiers? Yeah. So I Chase was a big boy and Goldberg was a big boy. I watched them wrestle each other in the parking lot at main event in Atlanta that Jim I was telling you about. They were throwing each other into cars. The cars were lifting up when they would slam each other in the car. The cars would lift up and on, on their sides. Like I, I was amazed. I mean, these guys, these two animals going at it, you know, they were just kind of play fighting, but still, uh, yeah, you know, I think Goldberg speared me in that match. It was pretty quick. And, you know, I, I think I timed it right. I blew the wind out when you're supposed to, because if you don't blow your wind out when he does that spear, you're gonna, he's going to knock the wind out. You. Right, of course. So, yeah, I think I timed it right. You know, he, he thanked me for it. And, uh, you know, it, that was really it. But the, the, the behind-the-scenes stories with Goldberg – in between the matches, in between, you know, I think we went to, um, we went to, where do we start out? What's on the, the, the east side of Australia? Um, so of the Gold Coast. Uh, Brisbane. We started out of Brisbane. Yeah. Then we went to Sydney, then we went to Melbourne, and then Perth was canceled. Yeah. But... It was hanging out with Goldberg behind the scenes. I can't really get into any details of it because, you know, you know that, that's that's certain things are, are better to be left unsaid. But it, it, I mean, he was 
he was a good friend, good guy. You know, I wish I got to, got to work with more, but you know, that was when he was going through, you know, who's next, you're next. Like anyone that was working him wasn't going to last long in the ring, you know, maybe a minute tops. Yeah. So not like you're going to get, you're, you're not going to get, what's the word? You're not going to get a rub from him. He's going to no. kill you. And, <laughs> so. That's cool, bro. Um, it's not like wrestling Terry Funk where he's going to make you look good and you're going to, he's going to elevate you. Goldberg's just going to kill you. <laughs> and that's it. So. Excellent, bro. Um, so like you reunite with Vito in January of 2001. The band is back together finally now, and you feud with the Thrillers. You also work with Mike Awesome and Lance Storm on March 3rd in Knoxville, Tennessee on Nitro. But 23 days later, WCW was sold. Uh, I wanted to ask you, when did you first hear the company was going to get sold? I think we're all at the power plant, just kind of practicing around. And I don't remember the name of the, there was another company that wanted to come in and buy it. Uh, Fusion Media. Yeah. That's it. Fusion Media. Yeah. Yeah. So they wanted to buy it, but then I think we lost our TV spot on TNT. So then we lost 70% of our value. And that's when w, uh, Vince McMahon saw the opportunity and stepped in and, and uh, bought it for cheap. Uh, I didn't really know for certain until I saw Shane McMahon in Panama City Beach. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But Shane McMahon was my buddy. Like, I even before that, I've ran into him at some clubs in Atlanta. <laughs> and, you know, I, I knew him before. So he really liked me. I really liked him. So he he was part of a lot of the success, the success I had in WWE. Um, I, I know that whole transition of when WWE bought WCW, everybody was, you know, on the edge of their seat trying to figure out if they're going to have a job the next day. Uh, a lot of the reason why WCW went under was because they were paying everyone contracts, even if they were sitting at home for a year. They would even have people's wives under contract that had nothing to do with the company <laughs> yeah. and family members. So they, they just managed the money awful just handing out money left and right. Uh, so, you know, that transition I met with Jim Ross, you know, they were meeting all the power plant guys to see who they wanted to bring up to TV, WWE, or send them to either Louisville or Heartland Wrestling Association, HWA with Les Thatcher. Uh, so I met with Jim Ross and that was nerve wracking. But then, you know, I, I had signed a lease. I had a high rise apartment in Atlanta and, uh, I had to break the actually no. I let my buddies stay there. They just paid the rent for it. I didn't have to break the lease, but I had to move up like a week later to to Cincinnati. So I mean at that point you just it, it, they they want to see how you react. And I was always positive. You know, if they you know wanted me to go here or there, I was always the first in the ring and the last to leave. I played the game. I played the politics. So the, the transition from WCW to WWE, that was stressful. And then when all of our WCW guys that they brought over, a lot of the guys were getting cut every week. It was almost like a chopping block at, at Heartland Wrestling Association. I mean, it had me, Elix, 
you know, Lash, everybody. And then one by one, they're cutting people left and right. And I just, every week, if you can imagine, you know, they're looking at you, they'll like, they'll, you'll have a match in front of them. They'll assess you and then you're cut. So every week I made it through the next, made it to the next week, made it to the next week. And then they brought me back up to TV. So that was, you know, but then when we got into the locker room, uh, you know, the WWE, we're in, we're in their locker room. You know, that was right after the Monday Night Wars. So it was still competitive. So it, it was it was a little nerve wracking. I, I remember one time I put some uh, hot stuff. We use this hot stuff. Yeah. That would draw the blood to the surface and make you look pumped. And we Bodybuilders used to use it. But it had a, like a weird smell to it. And, and Billy Gunn was allergic to it. Oh, shit. So I'm in the locker room. This is like one of my first days. I got hot stuff all over me. And someone, <laughs> I forget who told me, they're like, yeah, Billy Gunn's not going to like that. You better take you better get, take that off because you're going to get some heat from it. I was like, shit. I was like, so I went and showered it off, washed it off. And you couldn't smell it on me, but it was still in the room. Right. And Billy Gunn walks in. Who the fuck? put hot stuff on, but screaming, kicking shit. Shit. And then I saw, and I, and I'm like looking around, I don't know. And then I saw Kid Romeo walk by. And I, was, <laughs> I blamed it on Kid. And he doesn't know. I don't know if he knows this, but I blamed it on Kid Romeo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I dodged the bullet there. Oh, that's brilliant, man. Oh, I, yeah. oh, my God. I love that. Oh. I mean, he happened just to walk by. I saw he walked by the door and Billy Gunn was looking at him. He already thought. I was like, it was still him. <laughs> that's um, brilliant, man. That's brilliant. <laughs> he stitched up Kim Romeo. It's great. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to rewind a little bit and just ask you about the final Nitro and your memories of that day uh just just tell me like how you were feeling and and, and around you you know what the general feeling was and, and what you did afterwards did you go out and have a drink with some of the guys i think alan went for uh, a drink with three count or something like that but uh what did you get up to it, me yeah it was euphoric you know it was exciting and at the same time you know you know we had anxiety because we didn't know what was going to happen next so we just made the best of it. We all went out and partied that night. It was me, Sean O'Hare, Ray Mysterio. I got a picture. I had a picture of all of us on the couch that night. And I think my girlfriend flew in at the time. And we it, it was a blast. We're up till probably eight or nine in the morning. Wow. So yeah, <laughs> it, the the clubs that we went to, but it was man, I think it was club. Club La Vila, Panama City Beach. Because that's yeah. where the show was. Right, of course. So, yeah, no, it was you know, nerve-wracking and, and, and exciting at the same time because we knew that, you know, some of us were going to go to WWE. We just didn't know who. Right. So, and um, and I always had that confidence in me. I always knew that. Just because, you know, I was in great shape then. I had a great look. Like I, I just felt like they would, that I would be, I always thought that they would, they would choose me for something and they did. Yeah. Cause you would definitely would have had the look that Vince McMahon would like as well. Um, 
So yeah, uh, another question I had before I, I I start really digging into this WWE portion. Uh, were you a little um, hopeful or disappointed, or that the um, Vito? We hopefully he's going to come in, and we disappointed that he wasn't brought along. Yeah, yeah, I was. Um, but at the same time, I was happy that I got an offer because I didn't know what I was going to do at that point. I mean, that's all I knew. That's all I knew. I thought, you know, when you put all your eggs in one basket, which you shouldn't, but I had put all my eggs in one basket. So I didn't know what I was going to do. So I was just, I was more excited. It, you know, it sucked that Vito didn't come and a lot of people didn't come, but um, at the same time, I was just grateful that they, that they brought me over. Absolutely. And when I spoke to um, Alan Funk, he talked about the fact that you had a dark match with Rob Van Dam, which was on Sunday Night Heat in Birmingham, Alabama. And apparently it was really good on July 10th, 2001. Yeah. It leads to you being one of the rare guys that are kept around that didn't participate in the invasion angle, as we've alluded to earlier. Elix Skipper, Alan, Reno, Mike Sanders, Lash LaRue, Evan Courageous, Easy Money, and Sharkboy are all let go. And I believe Brian Adams also ends up getting let go at some point as well, despite yeah. getting the chance to be on TV for a few weeks with Chronic. Um, so, like, uh, heartbreaking for, for a lot of these guys and to be honest, a lot of them ended up leaving the wrestling business. Reno, uh, Alan did a little bit with uh, Lucha Libre USA and TNA, uh, Sanders and TNA as well. Lash LaRue did a little bit here and there. I think Evan just left the business. Uh, yeah. But like, yeah, like it seems like this was like a heartbreaking moment for a lot of guys and like they just were, were done with the business. But anyway, just wanted to put that out there again. Um, you were, again, one of the rare guys. What was the feedback for that match? Oh, I was, everybody loved it. Um, it was a, the fact when I heard I was wrestling Rob Van Dam, I, I was relieved because he's so good that he's so good at making other people look good. And he, he could have been selfish, you know, but he wanted, you know, he, he was really, he really wanted me to get the job. So we had a hell of a match and he made me look like a million dollars. I always joke with him after that. I was like, you know, cause he was a veteran, but I was like, yeah, I made, I made you kid. I made you look good in WWE. I was like, he always laughed because of our match. <laughs> so, I mean, he was already established, obviously it was just a joke, but yeah. But no, I mean, I got, that's probably the number one reason why I got, position it, at that point it would, if i had a bad match with him i would have been cut so, absolutely yeah yeah and uh, that's a match i definitely would have liked to sink and considering both of your athletic abilities at the time um you do spend that time in heartland wrestling you become the heavyweight champion two times uh I guess uh, after that, you, you, you're finally brought to the, the main roster. It's the 24th of June, 2002 uh, at the Gund Arena uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, in a match with Tommy Dreamer. But then on the July the 15th, you debut on Raw, you win the hardcore title, and then you lose it back to Bradshaw in a skit later on uh, yeah. when you've shake, shaken Eric Bischoff's hand. Uh yeah. I don't know. I just found that to be an odd way to debut somebody. They uh, win the belt, they lose it the same night. And then after that, 
I'll get into that after this, but um, what what were you told about that idea and and why did it kind of just go to, you were on Sunday Night Heat now for a long time. Did they not? Well, really it, was a, it was basically like a welcome committee, you know, to WWE. Welcome to WWE. I get to meet the clothesline from hell. <laughs> so, you know, when I was talking to Bradshaw about it, you know, everyone was scared of Bradshaw. And I told him, I was like, I want you to come with that, that clothesline as hard as you can. So I told him that. I was like, you know, I challenged him. So I'm standing there and I get the belt and I'm talking to Eric Bischoff and I can, you know, the door gets kicked in and I can just feel it. Like I can feel it coming and I turn right into it and then boom. <laughs> and I, that was on the concrete. Luckily I kept my head forward when I took the bump, but it was, you know, it was, he, he, he came with it. I told him to though, but he, and he obliged. So, you know, it was just a welcome, like, welcome to WWE. Boom. Right. You win the belt. Oh, okay. <laughs> we'll take it right back from me. I, I was excited. It didn't, it didn't bother me on yeah. how they, I was just happy to be on TV. Awesome, bro. That's a great attitude to have. I just thought it was interesting to bring that up because uh, I actually forgot about it until I was doing my research in the last few days. And I was like, oh yeah, I remember that. Now I remember being so excited that Johnny the Bull had come on board and had won the hardcore title. Um, yeah. So uh, from June, 2002 to the 27th of January, 2003, you wrestle strictly at house shows and on Sunday night heat. Um, were you getting feedback from the company at all about why it was taking so long for them to think of like something, you know, to do with you, to have the audience learn about who Johnny the Bull Stamboli is? Um, were there any sort of discussions with creative about that? No, I just knew that I, you know, like I said, I was still really new to the industry, even though I had my success in WWE, I mean, WCW, I was still a rookie and WWE style was different from WCW. Like WCW, you do a move and you work the crowd. You know, do a big move, boom, turn around and look at the crowd, maybe do something, something, you know, with, with some type of emotion or or uh or personality towards the camera or the crowd. WWE, they want you focused on the guy at all times, the guy that your your opponent at all times. They don't want all you right. working the so I had to learn the way that they did things. So it was different. And the ring was bigger. It was 20, 20 by 20. And I think ours was 18 feet wide or something like that. Yeah. Right. So and the ropes, they, you know, you had to learn how to hit their ropes because they used real ropes and WWE used cables. I'm sorry, WCW used cables with tape wrapped around it. And then WWE used actual real rope with tape wrapped around it. So you had to learn how to, because the ring was so much bigger, how to position yourself and work the ring and the cameras and all that. So I didn't really, they, I was just happy to be there. You know, they were, they were booking me on shows. I wasn't sitting at home. Um, you know, the feedback from the booking agents were always positive. I always stood back and I stayed, even after my match was over, I stayed and watched every match after that. Uh, that's when I met, I think I met The Rock one time. I was standing there watching the uh, monitor and he walked up beside me and he saw that I had the bull tattoo on my shoulder. He's yeah. standing there watching the monitor. He, 
he looked over at my at the board. He did his little, you know, his eyebrow thing. He looked at it, and he goes, "Nice, nice bull." And I said, "I said, Brock, that's my birth sign." And I go, "I didn't get it because of you. <laughs> Don't get it twisted." He started laughing. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I I just waited for my. I didn't because you don't want to like when you're that new in a in a new company you know you have you don't want to rub people the wrong way and you know i i i didn't want to be out of place by complaining or asking for a push i just waited for it to happen and then that is interesting because when we interviewed Doug Basham, he talked about a mistake he made because he questioned a finish and said, shouldn't we wait till the pay-per-view to drop the belts or something like that? And then the next thing, the Bashams were like just on velocity for the next 10 months or something like that. Yeah. So you're playing the game correctly. You're just doing your job. You're learning uh, their style. You're just waiting for that opportunity. You're being patient. So credit to you again. Uh, and... Uh, it brings me to a very exciting portion of time. Finally, the FBI from ECW is reformed now here in the WWE on SmackDown as you and Chuck are brought over to team with Nunzio, aka Little Guido. Uh, you must have been really excited about this because you know, this pumped. is this is your thing right here. <laughs> yeah, I was pumped. I, I mean, I couldn't be more excited. And then, you know, Polly, you know, Polly Dangerously was there. Like, it was his idea. Of course, Nunzio was there, WWE owned ECW. They wanted to form the FBI, the WWE's FBI faction. It just, you know, and Chuck being from, you know, Rhode Island, he's, you know, Italian. So he, you know, he came up with his look with a cigar and the yeah, slick cool. back hair and the track suits. So I was like, oh man, this is perfect. Fit right <laughs> to it. So uh, I, I was, I was beyond excited that was probably my favorite time in my career and it was it had so much potential because we were getting over yeah like we you can tell when you're working backstage like at one point everyone was coming up to us and they wanted to work us they were they're they're presenting ideas to us you know top guys um they're all, you know, you can feel it. You, you can feel the, the turning point when you start to get over and you're working all the top guys, whether it's Taker, Kurt Angle, Brock Lesnar, Kishi, Rikishi. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was just, I, at that point, I really thought I made it. I, I was like, this is it. I'm here to stay for the long term. And then politics creeps in. <laughs> We'll get to we'll get to that we'll get to yeah. that and uh, the first guy that you guys are working with out of the gate is Rikishi. Uh, you know, Nunzio is bringing in his boys to uh, sort him out. Got to bring this up because everyone knows about it. You press slamming Rikishi was one of the most impressive feats of strength I think anyone has ever seen. No one's ever done that to him before or since. Tell me a little bit about that, you know, talk, maybe you talked to him beforehand. Hey man, I want to press slam you. Maybe he's like, do you think you can do it? And you're like, yeah, I can do it. And what was the reaction from everyone backstage? So I was getting ready to wrestle Rikishi and Rikishi knew I like to press people. Uh, so he asked me in the locker room, he goes, do you think you can press me? And I said, I don't know, let's try it. 
so we're in the locker room backstage and we just got up, I got up under them and then this was the easy part getting them here. The hard part was in the extension. Yeah. Popping them. So it's almost like a cleaning jerk, you know, when you boom and then boom. So we practiced it backstage. I was able to do it. He's like, yeah, but can you do it in front of, you know, 15,000 people or whatever? Because that and live television, that's the difference. And I said, I don't know, I guess we'll try it. And I said, if you call it, I'll be ready. So then we go out and, you know, I think we walked out, all three of us, the ref pushed Chuck and Nunzio back. And then Keish and I got into it and uh, rolled in the ring. He shot me off, gave me a, a, a bear hug. He goes, he goes, you ready? I said, I'm ready. So I headbutted him, sold my head because he's Samoan and he's got the hardest head. Yeah. And then he came back around and then boom. And then I remember just sitting there and like, please God, please God. And then popped him and then slammed him. Then I had to sell my back because, you know, he's so heavy, you have to sell the back. Uh, but after that match, Vince McMahon was standing, everyone in the gorilla position, the go position was standing and clapping. Wow. Everybody was clapping. This man came up to me because I want you to do that to everybody. He goes, I don't care who it is. He goes, I love real shit. He goes, that's real. Because I want you to do it to everybody. So that made that day made me. That was Rikishi made me that day. That's Those amazing. are the days like, you know, I'd already had some success, but that day was the day. That's fantastic, man. What a great story there. And then I had everyone like Big Show. I, I tried to press, I just tried to see who I could press. So we're at Big, I, I was wrestling Big Show at a house show and he called the press. <laughs> I'm like, all right, let's play it. So I got him, you know, I got up under him and I was able to extend, but he's ass heavy. So I couldn't get my right. Oh, I used right. to throw up 315 military press. 20 reps, no problem. Boom, boom, boom. So I got him like halfway and I couldn't lift him. So I just, you know, improv, I just let him fall on me. And then he covered me and then I kicked out. Ah, oh, right, right. So, you know what I mean? If you can't get him up, and then either you drop him behind or you make it a false finish. I just turned it into a false finish. Oh, fair yeah, we were, <laughs> yeah, we were, after that, I was getting ready to wrestle Brock Lesnar. And Brock, you know, he's a amazing athlete, great talent, but as a person, he's kind of a, you know, I don't know. Him and I never really hit it off. Um, pound for pound, I was the strongest wrestler by far. Obviously, he would, you know, he's a collegiate two-time All-American wrestler. He's an amazing athlete. But he came up to me and I was getting ready to wrestle him because Vince told me to tell you that you can't press me during the match. I was like, what? I was like, Brock, you're beating me, right? And he goes, he goes, yeah. I said, so if I'm about to hit you with my move and then you end up beating me, I mean, that just makes you look better. You know what I mean? Because you're not Absolutely. beating some, you know, worthless piece of crap out there. Yeah. So he's like, I don't know. That's just what Vince told me. So then I went over to Vince. Vince like, I never said that. I don't want you to do that to everyone. So obviously if Brock doesn't want me pressing him, I'm not going to be able to press him because it still takes two to be able to do that. Yeah. So, I mean, we had a good match. And I, you know, went out there and we did business. Good business. I didn't complain. 
but he could have made me look better than he did. And right. that's just it goes. Absolutely, man. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about Brock because I did watch that earlier and I was really impressed with the, you know, how athletic you both are and how you worked with each other. But I did notice there was no press slam. So that's a shame. Like someone like Rikishi's like doing the right thing, being like, hey, I'm going to help this guy and he's going to be yeah. able to do this. You know, even shows like, hey, do you want to do it to me? So that's a, yeah. a shame to hear that, you know, Lesnar would, would be like that. Um, but uh, you also, you guys are working with The Undertaker. I asked Chuck about this. i got to ask you about this because... I, you know, I, I watched, I was watching this all back in the day and the FBI every week would just like, when you get hate, you're getting hate on yeah. people. Like they actually let you guys get hate on people. And um, if you had a faction like that in today's WWE, that faction would just get killed every week. But back then Paul Heyman, obviously is working quite a lot behind the scenes to make sure that the FBI looked like a threat. And it seemed like, um, you guys were actually of a lot of use and what the stable did affected others, other storylines and everything. You're always actively involved in so many things. Different, different storylines. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, firstly, talk to me about Undertaker, but also Paul Heyman's vision and how he protected the FBI faction and made sure that that well, faction was, was strong. Well, it wasn't always, it wasn't only Paul Heyman. It was Shane McMahon. Yep. Shane McMahon loved us, and he's one of our buddies. So every time Shane McMahon was there, we would get written into the storylines. We'd get, we would win, you know, book to the moon. And then when Shane wasn't there for that week or whatever, we were off TV. Or and this goes back to the politics of a couple people in the booking committee that we didn't really like each other. Right. So, you know, and Shane was Shane obviously trumped everyone. But when Shane wasn't there, uh, it, it uh, you know, it showed. We we could tell. We could tell. But as far as Undertaker, Undertaker is probably my favorite person because, like, you would go up to him and ask him, "Taker, what do you want to do?" He goes, "Just listen to me." So it was a relief to me to know that I didn't have to remember anything. Calling <laughs> the ring, I didn't have to. He, he we didn't talk about obviously the finish. We knew what the finish was, but the entire match, we didn't talk about anything. He just called it the whole time. So it was, it was and then after that, you know, we're, he's, he's a general of the locker room. Everyone respects him. So after, you know, the match or anything that we did with him, we would uh, be at the hotel lock or the hotel uh, bar. And he, he would see me walk by and be like, Johnny, come here. He'd always try to make me miss my flight the next day. So we'd be his favorite drink, Jack Daniels. So we're doing shot after shot. And I'm not going to turn down the taker. So yeah. I'm out there with him all night. And then a couple times he made me miss my flight. <laughs> what and there was another time. Not a lot of people know this. This is inside stuff. I had to go to wrestler's court. Oh, no. And yeah. So it's this is when I first made the transition over and I was on TV with WWE doing the, you know, Sunday velocity stuff. And then I had a security guard carry my bags in, you know, cause I wanted to tip them. I'm like, here, just carry my bags. And then Steven Regal was walking behind me and he was like, you know, Steven Regal liked me, but he was like, 
I can't believe it. You know, his accent, his British accent. I can't believe it. Uh, he was in my, you know, 24 or 30 years in the business. I've never seen anyone do this before. And I'm like, oh, shit. And then uh, later on that day, I have the, the, um, the doctor in the back putting oil on my back and then Regal opens the door and he walks in and he looks, he's like, and he shuts the door. And before you know it, I have to go to wrestling stand or court. So see, uh, Undertaker was a judge. Um, and this was none of the office. This was all closed door. None of, nobody yeah. in the office. Undertaker was a judge. Um, uh, Regal was the witness. <laughs> Bradshaw was the prosecutor. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, I I was thinking to myself, I'm like, how can I get out of this? So someone smartened me up and said, well, they like bribes. So, <laughs> yep. so I got, before wrestler's court, I gave Bradshaw a bottle of Jim Bean, big bottle, because he loved that. I gave Taker a big bottle of Jack Daniels. And then Stephen Regal likes, like, he likes amphibians, like snakes and lizards and stuff. So I gave him this, like, book on, on amphibians like a nice book and he was like thank you very much blah 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 so we're getting to go to wrestling camp and i needed to hire an attorney so i'm like who has more heat than me right now and i was like hmm raven raven has more heat than me so i went up to raven and you know i sold him on the idea and he was like yeah this is great because he had his own ulterior motive there that he thought he would make me look bad. <laughs> so we get so we get backstage in the wrestler's court, and you know, Undertaker goes, because you you bribed us so much, you know, me, the prosecutor, and the witness, we're dropping all charges on you. And because Raven has more heat than you, we're 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 gonna, you know, prosecute Raven right now. So you're free to go. <laughs> and Raven was like, and I had to, I got to walk out. No problems. It was hilarious. So it, it backfired on Raven. <laughs> right. I, I think I've interviewed about 85 people now. That's now my favorite story that we've ever had on the show. That is my wow. favorite. Yeah. <laughs> you got out of it. Yeah. It's 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 Raven. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Raven, Raven. All my heat was transferred over to Raven. He got prosecuted. <laughs> See, this is this is what wrestling should be on TV. This is what I want to see. Oh, yeah, that, that would be a great segment. That would be a great, great storyline. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to talk about the time that you came to Australia for the Passport to SmackDown tour and how me and, and my other nerdy friends got the chance to meet you. We had had the chance to talk to Doug Bash and we were so excited that we actually got to talk to a wrestler. You know what I mean? It's such like a... Uh, a nice, like, sweet story kind of thing for a fan. And we've been dying to see WWE since, you know, 1998. So, you know, this is like, what, 2003, 2004? So for us, this is like like Christmas Day. Um, yeah. I remember meeting you and, like, I had, like, an FBI sign and I had, like, a picture of the FBI that you signed. And I remember fumbling around because my 
trying to turn on my camera to get the picture and you were very patient with me, which I always appreciated. Uh, and, you know, me, my friend Mike and my friend Daniel, we were just massive FBI fans. I'm the only Italian out of the three of us, but, you know, we were, we were always big on this and, you know, it was, you guys taught us that. Uh, me and my friend Mike had uh, seats right along the ramp and as you came out, you saw us, you knew that we were there, you high-fived us, you pointed to the sign. You, mate, you enriched our experience so much because you paid attention to us even when the show was going on. Um, so I just wanted to tell that story for everyone out there, and we'll probably pop the picture up of us meeting you at this point in post-production. But um, one thing that uh, was interesting on this show, because I, I feel like Nathan Jones was supposed to be working maybe Chuck I can't remember who he was supposed to be working, but he leaves before the show even takes place. And, uh, you know, this is like a big thing, like Nathan Jones, the Australian wrestler in WWE is going to be performing tonight. I remember the scene. He had just walked in. He was saying hello to fans. He was signing autographs. One lady was asking him about how she wanted to make his uh, official website for him. And he really wanted to have this conversation with her quickly. But one of the agents just kept on just nudging him. Nathan, we got to go. we got to check in. Nathan, 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 Nathan. And like I could see, you know, looking up quite high that he was getting slowly but surely more and more ticked off. So I think I witnessed Nathan Jones make the decision, you know what, I don't want to fucking do this anymore. Do you remember anything about that? I don't remember about that, but I remember he was on a flight overseas and he was tired of the traveling and he started kind of flipping out a little bit. Nathan Jones was, he was my friend. I liked him, but he was, he was definitely misunderstood and he was scary like the, some of the stories that he told me when he was in prison. Do you know how he went to prison? I can't remember. So he, he told me he went to prison because they robbed a bank and he was the getaway driver in a convertible. So he's seven feet tall. I was like, <laughs> what? I think you were the getaway driver. You're, 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 you stick out like a sore thumb. He's like, I don't know, mate. He's like, I don't know, mate. And then I'm like, all right, so you're in prison. And he goes, yeah, he was always fighting the, the guards in prison. So they would always, you know, come in with the armor and the shields to, to bring, to, to take him wherever they wanted to take him. And he would wait on them. So he would tell me all these stories and I'm looking at him. And, you know, when you're looking at someone in the eyes and, you know, they're not all there, they can snap at any time. He was, he was, he was that guy. He, he was, he could snap on you at any time. And I, I just think that, you know, the traveling got to him. And uh, did you see the segment where the FBI jumped? Yeah. Nathan Jones. And then uh, I took the stairs, the top part of the stairs and Chuck held his leg in between. And I smacked the, I smacked his leg with the, well, made it look like we smacked his leg with the top of the chair and I yeah. broke his leg in half. So that was the last time we basically ended Nathan Jones career in that match. Right. As a storyline, it wasn't. Of course. Obviously. So, but that's how, that's how I, Johnny the bull ended Nathan Jones for career. <laughs> but awesome. no, he, he, he was a good, he was a good guy. Uh, but he, I just think he couldn't handle the, the stress of it all and like in that one incident where you're talking about 
Yeah. Uh, he, you know, he would get annoyed. Yeah, he a was lot just, of scared of that. He was just trying to talk to this lady because she was trying to like offer like to make a website for him and not yeah. have one. So he was really trying to listen, but this guy kept on buzzing in his ear, and I could just yeah. I was like, oh, like uh, this isn't this isn't going to end well. Um. Anyway, back to the FBI. Uh, the team was getting over, uh, so over we have that every the whack list. You're, remember you're, that? you're whacking everyone. Oh, I love yeah. that. Yeah. I especially love the uh, the scene where you have to have a sit down with Taker uh, oh, backstage. Yeah. It's just like you're, you're you're on the table with your arms all like tense, yeah. the lighting, and you look shoulders like, look like boulders. <laughs> yeah. yeah, oh, it's great. And Chuck's, and Chuck's sitting there with a cigar, <laughs> staring at him. I remember it's so that. good. Yeah, I'm a big fan of The Sopranos, so this stuff is just perfect. Uh, but yeah. you know, you, obviously, you guys are getting over so well that they decide to send Chuck over to Raw. And then they don't do much with him over there and off he goes. And you're just with Nunzio now on a team on SmackDown. Why did they do this? It was working. It, you know, you guys were together for quite some time there. Why Why was this a, a decision that was made? Well, so here's what I think happened. Uh, a lot, nobody knows this, but I'll give you an exclusive. Uh, we were over in England and... Arn Anderson was really drunk and me and Chuck were, he was talking shit to me and Chuck. And then me and Chuck, Chuck was like, I'm going to knock your head off your shoulders. If you don't shut up. And Arn Anderson was a booker. Uh, that's part of the politics. So shortly after that, we're broken up or they would send us back to, to Louisville for no reason. Uh, you know, last minute, I wasn't even packed for it. I didn't have enough clothes and never rental car or nothing. So they would mess with us in that regard. But yeah, after, after that, after we got, cause they sent Arn Anderson home and made him go to rehab for six months. Really? So he always held that against us. Oh, okay. So that, that I think was probably, and then Shane McMahon had already left the company. Shane was our, our number one fan. Shit, so of course. With, you know, with those two things happening, that's 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 what I think happened. Wow, because that's such bullshit. Back, when I came back, when I tried to make a lot of people don't know this either. When I, you know, the relic character that I did. Yeah. So I created that character because I did the, the fake Muda in Japan. I'm like, yeah, they, they don't really have a character like that here in Japan. And I liked the Muda character so much with the mist and everything because I really caught on to it. I was like, I wanted to create my own type of Muda character. So I, uh, Andre over at a, uh, AFX Studios in Atlanta, he does a lot of the Walking Dead like uh, graphics and some stuff for Triple H with his crown that one time where he walked out with a crown. He made that. He made. He makes a lot of the belts. Uh, he made, I gave him a picture of Darth Maul, Jeepers Creepers, and Spawn. I said, make me a mask. So he made me this mask. I created this character. And then I reached out to Stephanie and, and well, Ste Shane wasn't there, Stephanie McMahon. And she got me booked on um, a week-long tryout doing house shows with the character. And I was wrestling Val Venus and we, Val, you know how good of a worker Val Venus was. We had amazing matches. The fans were standing after. They loved the character. But guess who the booking agent was? 
Arn Anderson. Arn Anderson. Fuck. So, so uh, obviously he remembered everything that happened. So then TV, I'm supposed to be booked on TV that Monday. And then Stephanie McMahon tells me that Arn, the, the, the booking report from the, the shows over the weekend says that I don't really know the character. I need to work on the character more. So basically he buried me. He could have said, oh, you know, the, the fans loved him. He did great. But he buried me in Stephanie McMahon. And then that's why because Vince looked at the carry. They met. I, they, I met with Vince with full the mask on and everything. He walked around and looked at me. He goes, I love it. And then he walked off. And then I was supposed to be on TV that night. And then I never was on TV. And then I, that's when I went over to TNA with the character. And then they, they dropped the ball on it too. Right. That sucks so bad. Uh, but yeah, like uh, I thought it was interesting that you, you reinvented yourself with all of that. Um, and I wanted to also bring it back to the 31st of October, 2004, before we get into some other uh, talk before the end of this interview. Uh, you wrestled Heidenreich at the Broad Bent Arena in Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah. Uh, I believe this is a house show. Um, this is the last match that you had there as Johnny the Bull Stan Bowley. Uh, what, how did it come about? You know, what was the situation? I guess Johnny Laurinaitis might have called you to. Yeah, I, I, I kind of had a feeling because everything that had, that had been happening up until that point that I kind of saw the writing on the wall that that uh, probably was going to get released. Um, and they used Heidenreich. They put, put Heidenreich over on me as an enhancement match for him. And then yeah. after that, I was... I was at home and I got the call from John Laurinaitis and I kind of knew, I, I kind of felt it. And he goes, I got good news and I got bad news. <laughs> well, he said, Johnny, I got good news and I got bad news. You know how he talks. And I'm like, well, what's the bad news? He goes, we're going to have to let you go. We don't have anything for you. That's bullshit. I said, All right. Well, and, I never really liked John Laurinaitis anyway. None of the power plant guys did because he was always like, you guys are on the bubble constantly, like scaring us. But so when he called me to release me, uh, I had already been planning on going to Japan before that. So I already had my, I already had that set up to, so I, I had no time off. I went straight to Japan. But he he told, he lied and said he got me booked in Japan. I said, no, he did it. I, I got myself booked. And I'd already been speaking to Muda and his wife. So, um, I mean, that was that. I got the call and that was a wrap. And then, you know, most of my friends reached out to me about it. And then one surprise, one person that surprised me, uh, Bubba Dudley, reached out to me after after I got released. Because, you know, we, we had really good matches with him. But there was one time where he, he started yelling at me yelling at me in front of like everyone. So then I pulled off to the side. I was like, Bubba, I was like, if you ever yell at me again like that in front of people, we're going to have problems. I said, so don't do it again. I said, we're going to be fighting. And then after that, I guess he respected me for that. And then he, you know, really took on a liking to me. So we were friends after that, but uh, he was one of the guys that, that called me after I got released, you know, Ray, you got to, my, my buddies called me Ray, you know, uh, 
uh, Val Venus, uh, A Train. I mean, all the usual guys I was friends, even Bradshaw. I had I was with Bradshaw one night. We're at a bar, and I had his back in a bar fight. So ever since then, he loved me. <laughs> and Bradshaw hates everybody. But yeah, that's how it ended. I went to right. uh, Japan and did the fake Muda. Yep, and I was going to bring that up. It's 2004. You portray a fake version of the Great Muda replacing uh, your friend who had blown his knees out. Uh, and, of course, it leads to a match against the man himself on the 5th of December at uh, All Japan's The Unchained World in Tokyo, Japan. Uh, how was it working with him? How was it working? You're going from WWE TV to working, you know, the Japanese style. It was... I was a fan of the Muda from WCW back in the day. So for me to like, I'm, you know, I'm wrestling all these guys like Taker, like I'm a fan, you know, for me to, to get out there and wrestle guys like that. It was just, even with Taker, when you're standing in the ring and then the fog's coming and you're watching the fog and you're just standing there and you're like, I'm getting ready to wrestle Undertaker. And he's walking out the whole theatrics of it. Like it was amazing. And Muda had the same type of theatrics with his, mask and his, the whole thing his whole gimmick when he would walk out to the ring so it was exciting and he was easy to work with easy to talk to um i was still learning you know i had to watch a lot of tape of, of his matches to see how he did you know the shining wizard and yeah i got i couldn't really do the the, the moon or the uh i think he, the moon saw off the top rope i couldn't yeah. do that uh, but they liked me because I had a similar build to him, which is why they put the gimmick on me. And then after that match, we had a great match. We did the double mist. I ran a spot where we did the double mist. That was hard. <laughs> Learning how to do the mist was hard. Like, because you, you, you take the condom <laughs> and you, you cut the tip, you pour the food coloring in it, you cut the tip off, you tie it in a knot. And then you have a, you know, you hide it somewhere in the ring and then you take a bump out and roll over to that spot. And when the time is right, you put it in your mouth and you just hold it in your mouth. And then I have the mask on and I already, I already have trouble breathing through my nose anyway, because I have a deviated septum. So I had to keep this thing in my mouth and breathe through my nose. And then you're already tired. And then when the time is right, you bite into it and then it explodes in your mouth and then you spray it when the time is right. So that was that was the most challenging part of it was learning how to do the mist. Right. That's really interesting. I always wondered how, like, uh, you know, I thought it was just maybe in a little cup and you, but that, that makes way more sense. Uh, yeah. You <laughs> always have a back just in absolutely. case. Just like with a razor blade, you always have a backup razor blade in case you lose it. If you have to get color. So. That's it. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you, you, you do the voodoo murderers with, uh, Chuck, you, you, you spend a, a good portion of time there in Japan. One thing I wanted to bring up was working for NWE in Italy as the full blooded Italians. Cause I just, I can just imagine that the Italian ladies over there definitely would have liked a bit of, uh, Chuck Palumbo and Johnny, the bull Stamboli. Oh, they, they <laughs> loved us there. Like we, we could have, we could have walked out through the ring and, and took a shit in the ring. And they would have cheered us. That's how how much we were over over there. Like it was, I'd never seen anything like it. And 
you know, there was one time we went out to eat with, I, I guess he was a mob boss. Like he was a, in Naples, like he was a, the Godfather. Really? Oh my sponsored, God. Sponsored the wrestling shows. Like he, he paid for it. So we, we went out to eat with him in this like red carpet affair. And uh, we're sitting there and I met his son's wife. And I thought it was like normal to like kiss on the cheek, like right, yep. And no, you're not supposed to do that. Oh. And his son is just staring at me all night. I'm like, ah oh, man, it's the last person I want to piss off. I didn't know, you know, it's different <laughs> culture. That's it, yeah. So, so yeah, no, and then there was a time where we were in Sicily and uh they 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 were able to rent out this old gladiator arena overlooking the Mediterranean. It was like 2000 years old. And they set up a ring in the middle of the arena and we drove out in a, in a Lamborghini. No. Yeah. It was a, it was a Lamborghini a convertible Lamborghini. And we we're, you know, carrying the Italian flags. Yeah. And it was, I we, we, we just, we didn't have cameras like we do back, you know, back then, like we, yeah. we do today. I wish I would have taken more pictures and videos of that tour because that was that was fun. But that the NWE got mismanaged. It was it could have been really good. I, I don't know exactly what happened, but it just got mismanaged. They got really big really quick, and they they just didn't know how to handle it. Right. Interesting. Well, that's a, a story I wasn't expecting. Uh, getting to have uh, dinner with a, a mob boss over there in Naples, so that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, I told him I was like, "Well, what?" It, I was like, "So in Japan, the yakuza when they screw up, they cut their fingers off." You can always tell, like the the mob and and or the mafia in in Japan because they're missing fingers. You know, so of course, yeah. Anytime, anytime, you know. If they have tats all over and they're missing fingers, they would come up to me and they're like, Johnny son, you come out with us tonight. And I'm like, hi, hi, hi. No problem. I go up with them. No problem. So I asked the 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 mob, I can't forget his name. I was like, what do you guys do when people will screw up here? He goes, we just kill them. Because oh. <laughs> they cut their fingers off over there. He's like, no, we just I'm like, all right. Well, I just wrestle. That's it. That's it. Fuck. <laughs> uh, again, yeah, Maurice. The stuff that you see that's you know outside of WWE was even in Mexico, the the cartels would sponsor the shows. Right. So I mean, there's a lot of you know whether it's in Japan, the yakuza, in Italy, the mafia, and the cartels in Mexico. You're you're dealing with some uh, colorful characters. That is true, without a doubt. Very scary stuff. Uh, in my yeah. research, I found something interesting. Please tell me if it's wrong. Uh, it's the 31st of July, 2007. It's on ECW on Sci-Fi in Phoenix, Arizona. It says that um, in this dark match, uh, so somebody by the name of the Unknown Wrestler defeats Chavo Guerrero. Was that you portraying that character? Because that's what I found in my research. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I was. I was the unknown wrestler. Right. And they thought that, and a lot of the local fans wanted. You know, they thought that that uh, that it was the relic character. Okay. The but they called me the unknown 
wrestler because they didn't know what name to announce me at yet. Because originally I was called the Red, Red Rum. Yeah. And then when I went over to, to TNA, uh, Road Dog came up with the name of Relic because it was similar. You know, yeah. Killer spelled backwards and Red Rum was Murder spelled backwards. So. Yeah. But yeah, I was the, I was the unknown wrestler, Russell Chavo. Right. So was that like a, a tryout or, um, you know? Or, or was yeah, it was a, it was a tryout. It was okay. A tryout. They gave me the longer tryout for the house shows after okay. that. Okay. Uh, okay. Now, yeah. now something. Val Venus. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, so that's, that's the time. Kind of like cool. the, the entrance to, to see if they wanted to give me an extended tryout, which they did. And that's when I went up to it. I think the, the house shows were in uh, Wisconsin. So, right. Yeah. Um, and we've not many more questions to go here, Johnny. Thank you so much for, for your time here tonight. Uh, seven months in TNA you spend there as Relic in 2008. Um, how did that run go for you? Because I think you said earlier that you feel like they kind of dropped the ball on the whole thing. Did they just not understand what to do with you? How did that go? Yeah, I mean, I went up there. It, it was my character. So when it's your character, you know, you have to protect the character. And when it's their character, they're going to, you know, protect it their way and push it the right way. When they put me in the match, you know, they thought it was an easy, you know, they, they thought the character looked great and they thought it was a nice uh, look or I guess to put me with Abyss and Raven, we did that thumbtack match. And I didn't want to do the thumbtack match, but I wanted to do, you know, show them I'm willing to do business. So I was, you know, I, I went because I wanted a, a way in to debut the character. Yeah. And that way in was through that thumbtack match. So after that was a good match. And then after that, they just, they, they you, you, can, you can only use that character a certain way. You can't, like, you can't be out there doing technical moves and like, you know, it, the, the wrestlers have to sell it a certain way and the, and the character has got to be written in a certain way. And they just weren't doing that. I don't think they didn't, they didn't care. It wasn't their character. So they didn't care. So I never got fired from there. I just quit because I didn't like what they were doing with it. And that's when I went over to, to, uh, tri I think I went to triple A after that in Mexico. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, because like I, I found in my research, but again, it, it the internet can be wrong. That it kind of felt like maybe you might have start. You were starting to maybe wind things down. You 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 were in Mexico. You did do a bit there and had a run there. Um, yeah. Was there a point in time where you're like, you know what? Like, uh, I was in WWE. I was Johnny Stamboli. I reinvented myself. I went to Japan. I tried to get this character over in WWE and TNA. Uh, we ever feeling like, you know what, like, I'm just going to, I just need to do something else. Was that ever a thought in your mind during that time period? Yeah, that was, that was going through my mind. Because uh, when I went to wrestling in AAA, I stayed with Mark Jindrak in Mexico City in, in Santa Fe, or no, Polanco, uh, which is a nice part of Mexico City. It's, Santa Fe is the nicest part, but Polanco's in walking distance. Yeah. Uh, I was sleeping on his couch and AAA was 
they had me on the cover of their magazine. They were putting me against, you know, all, you know, all their top guys. Uh, it was really lonely because Mark would do his thing. And then I would, we would, AAA would travel all over Mexico. I was really the only American. I didn't really know much Spanish. So it was, it was really lonely. And we were wrestling, you know, and slaughter, like our locker rooms would be slaughterhouses where they would like, you know, they would have rooster fights and oh, chicken fight, rooster yeah. fights. We would wrestle at Plaza del Toros, which is like the arena is like in some third world area. It, it, it just, it got really shady. Uh, and they weren't in AAA. I, I, I think his name was Renato or something. They treated the Americans like shit and they treated the Mexican wrestling was even worse. And Conan was the reason I was there. Conan was my buddy, but he ultimately didn't have the, um, you know, the end all. He wasn't the end all be all. He didn't have 100% control of creative. But they, they had me on the cover of magazines. I was always on their, you know, live t television segments, whether it was outside of the wrestling show or on the wrestling show or we're doing like news, like, um, you know, shows on, you know, different stations. Uh, and then they, I was so homesick. I was ready to come home. And then they had me booked. I, I, finally, they, they booked me a flight home, but they wanted me to wrestle Tijuana on Christmas Day. And I just no-showed it. Mm -hmm. I just no-showed it. And then I wrote this huge blog about how I basically buried the company, about how they treat the Americans, how they treat the Mexicans. Um, and then I had all these luchadors, these Mexican wrestlers contacting me that I was friends with. And they're thanking me for saying that. They're Because it was I said everything that they wanted to say, but they couldn't say it. So that, that was my way out. I never went back to AAA that buried them. T TNA was a bad experience for me. So it was back to back. Yeah. Bad experience. Experiences. So then I was like, you know, this is a wrap for me. And that's when I got into the mortgage industry where I do loans for people that want to buy houses. Uh, I started doing loans for a lot of the wrestlers like Charlie Haas, Bobby Lashley, Jack Swagger. Uh, I've, you know, I've done probably 10, you know, different wrestlers loans. So that's how I broke into the business and learned how to do it. And then I slowly started making my, you know, transition out of wrestling. I watched the movie The Wrestler with Mickey Rourke. I didn't want to be that guy, 50 years old. Did you ever yeah. see it? Yeah, several times. Depressing. Yeah. It's a good movie, but scary. As coming from my point of view, I didn't want to be 50 years old, still trying to wrestle, you know, always gone, you know, no family, alone. I was like, you know what, I, I got to get out of this industry. Plus, friends were dying, you know suicides overdose heart attack i think among us just died all right uh you know uh sean o'hare like oh, you know all these people were dying i was like i gotta get out of it so then i got out of it and uh and then i slowly did back into it here locally in arizona with a local company fsw that me and my buddy brian owned we had a local television show that we did we had it like we would book like the ricochets and the, you know, we had, we booked a lot of talent that are used today. Uh, 
at Celebrity Theater. We had like two thousand people there. Wow. We had a big hit. We booked Shane. My my last match was 2015 versus it was Relic versus Shane Helms. So it was mask versus mask. Right. And we 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 took a picture. If you go onto my Instagram, you'll see a picture of me, you know, facing off with a hurricane. And it was I, I thought I always thought that that would be a good angle. Me versus Hurricane, and it was a great match. I think I ended it ended by uh, I hung him from the uh, the top turnbuckle next to the post. I wrapped the chain around his neck. And he's just laying there like he's hanging from it, <laughs> and that's how I that's how it ended. <laughs> ended I watched. You ever see that documentary on the serial killer Iceman? Uh no, I heard a lot about it though. Yeah, so one of the ways he would kill people is because he was so tall that he would get a chain and wrap it around their neck and then then stand up and use the gravity. So that I did that, I used that move because it's relic, he's a monster, he's a killer. Yeah. Use that move, I wrapped the chain around Hurricane's neck and then stood up and I was just holding choking him in the middle of the match. (laughs) It's a great match, but that was that was my last match right wow so like going into that i guess you knew it was going to be your last match no no i didn't i just you know we even had a wrestling school here uh you know we had the school the local television show but it was so much to deal with that you know and i was still trying because i started making really good money at mortgages so i always had my foot one foot into wrestling and one foot in mortgages, and I had to make a choice. Like, yeah, I'm either all in here or all in there. So I just retired from wrestling, and you know, ever since then, my I've been blessed. Got married, you know. I make I'm working on kids right now. You know, I'm 44 years old now, so I have to like if I'm gonna have kids, I have to get going. So yeah, yeah. She, my wife's 34, so she's 10 years younger than me. Awesome. So, right. so that's where I'm at. You know, I. I I uh, I miss wrestling. I miss you know certain parts of it. I don't miss the politics. I don't miss the travel. Like I you know the the two hundred three hundred days a year travel. I don't miss that. But I miss the camaraderie of the of the boys in the back in the locker room and then the fans. So, but you know that was a different life. So I still I still have pain from some of the injuries. But uh, for the most part, I think I'm pretty healthy. I mean, I've had cat scan, like MRIs done on my brain to make sure I'm CTE. So, which I don't uh, check my heart out. Every everything's fine for the most part. It just you get scared from so many people that have died, whether it's heart, like Eddie Grove, heart attack. Yeah, Chris Benoit had CTE. That's what he went crazy. Mm-hmm. You never be too careful. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm sure like a lot of the CTE issues have led to suicides. I mean, if you just look at the yeah. people from the NFL and all that, um, yeah. it, it all kind of like uh, correlates with, with um, you know, the whole situation. So I, I th- it is an incredibly sad thing, but it's, it's nice to know that like you are a success story. And uh, you're fine. You're good, and you're, you're making money. You're doing fine right now. So that's what I like to hear at the end. That's the hardest part. Is yeah. you gotta humble yourself, 
and you got to let go that, oh, you're a big shot on TV, you did this, this, and this. A lot of guys can't make that transition over and let it go and humble yourself and then go into the normal private world and, and be successful at that. So that's probably one of the most things I'm proud of and probably one of the things that saved my life is retiring. Wrestling made a man out of me, but retiring from it also probably saved my life. Absolutely. And I totally understand where you're coming from. Like uh, my band broke up in October. So I've just made the, I'm 34 years old now. And I thought to myself, I have to let it go. It's, it's just, it's too hard in this isolated part of the world to make it work. And there's just not enough people for me to uh, make it work. You know, uh, I need a proper supporting cast. So I too have had that moment in the last year where I, I, I got to let it go. I want it, but I have to let it go and try yeah. and find success with something else, which is why I'm so happy that I have this podcast because, uh, you know, that I'm again, I, I feel I like I normally I'm, don't do podcasts. I don't, I know, but when I, when, you know, I saw some of the people that, because there's a, everyone has a podcast these days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, they have, you know, 20 followers or whatever, but yours, yours looked like it was legit. You and I've seen some of the people you've interviewed. So I was like, all right, I'll, I'll do this one. I definitely appreciate it, sir. It's been so great talking to you. And, and before I get to five second frenzy, again, uh, you've told everyone what you're up to today, but if there's anything you want to plug your Instagram and all that, where can the fans of Johnny the Bull Stan Bolly find you? I'm on Twitter. I've had like four Twitter accounts uh, suspended because I, I I smart off a lot people, <laughs> but now I'm back on it. I, it's under Johnny Stamboli with an I, S-T-A-M. So J-O-N-N-Y S-T-A-M-B-O-L-I, not with yep. a Y. Yep. Uh, and then I'm on uh, Instagram, J-Hug, Hugs, J-H-U-G-G-S 11. Uh, of course, Facebook, you, you contacted me on Facebook. I mean, that's really it. I don't, I don't have any, it's not like I'm out in that scene anymore trying to push social media, but if they want to communicate with me, those are the, the three best, probably Twitter would be the easiest because I can just respond back. I don't like if someone sends me a friend request on Facebook, I'm not really on that as much. And then Instagram, I'll, I'll, I'll look at their profile and if I think they're, you know, normal, then I'll, <laughs> then I'll otherwise there's some weird, there's some weirdos out there. So. Yeah. There, there are a lot of weirdos out there. Certainly some that like to lift up the blanket of uh, people in hospitals. Uh. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so everyone out there all of that information right down below will be in the description on youtube and also all the uh podcasting platforms but johnny the bull stamboli the final segment five second frenzy you have five seconds to answer each question again if you can't make it in five seconds it's okay i can't do anything about it uh first and foremost johnny the bull who is your favorite wrestler of all time um ultimate warrior of course. Who's been your favorite opponent over the years? Um, probably Undertaker. Excellent, excellent. And uh, the next one is the last one about wrestling. If you could pick a match that you've had, like would that would be your favorite or a moment where you thought like, wow, this was, this was a great match. If you could pick one match, what would you pick? 
the match versus Rikishi where I pressed him. Awesome, that, awesome. That, that pretty much made me. Excellent. Uh, moving away from wrestling, favorite book? Ah, uh, man. I like, I like, that's a tough one because I like self-help books, motivational books, Dave Ramsey books, financial stuff. Because, you know, I wasn't taught that growing up. So I had to learn on the fly, just like I had to learn wrestling on the fly. I had to learn how to be a man on the fly. Uh, I, don't, I don't really have like a, a non, it's all self-help stuff. Really, yeah. that's all I that's cool. Uh, moving to the arts, favorite TV show? Oh, man. I really like Impractical Jokers. <laughs> Very I, nice. really, I can watch that all day and crack up. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, favorite yeah. film? Scarface. Oh, man. Can't go past that. That's great. Uh, favorite musical artist? Oh, man. That's a tough question. I don't know if I can answer that. Probably Tupac. Oh, nice, bro. <laughs> Good choice. Good yeah. choice. Uh, favorite food? Pizza. Italian. Pizza is like probably like one of the most popular answers on the show. Uh, yeah. Again, with food, favorite place to eat on the road? There was this place in Boston called, called Kowloon's that all the WWE wrestlers would go to. It's like a Chinese spot or, or like Korean barbecue slash Chinese. That, that was always fun to go to because every, every, all the guys, all the boys would go to it. Um, so, yeah, that's in Boston, Kowloon's. Excellent, excellent. Oh, another one in Japan, uh, I forget the name. It's the Steakhouse. Uh Damn it. You walk in, probably some of your other guests would know this steakhouse in Japan. You walk in, it's got all these wrestlers, old school, everybody hanging on the wall. And like the steak over here or probably in Australia would be probably average. But when you're in Japan eating all their food, like when finally you get a steak, you're like, wow, this is the best steak I've ever had. But in Australia or in the States, it would be kind of average. Right. Ribera's. Ribera's. That's it. Ribera's. That's, that place in Japan was always fun to go to. Awesome, awesome. I'll have to hit that up if I ever get to go over there. Uh, three more to go, Johnny. Favorite alcoholic beverage? I like uh, I like tequila. I mean, you can mix so many different things, the tequila margaritas, you know, shots. I, I'd probably, I would say tequila. Yeah, it's a good one, especially if, you know, you know you have to drink that night, you feel a little tired, you have a shot of tequila, boom, you come alive. Okay. <laughs> it's it's yep. magic, it's magic. Uh, the second last one, Johnny, it is the naughtiest one of Five Second Frenzy. You're going to check out a chick who's pretty good looking. What's your favorite female body part? Mm. I'm going to have to go with the uh, derriere. <laughs> That's you and Chuck, you and Chuck both said the ass. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <And> the, <yeah. laughs> Excellent, bro. Uh, and the you, last, you can, you can you can buy you can buy breasts. <laughs> I guess buy ass too now. I guess, but uh, a, a real natural 
ass is the way to go for me. Fantastic. I agree. And the last one is your favorite curse word. Uh, uh, go fuck yourself. <laughs> That's my well, favorite thing. <laughs> it's always a great uh, insult because uh, most actually, I had a move. I had a move that I was working on it here locally on that show that I was doing. It's called the GFY. And <laughs> the fans would yell GFY, GFY. <laughs> Basically. I would have the guy in a wheelbarrow. My partner would hit the ropes. I would lift him up. Last second, he would jump up, wrap his hands around the guy's neck, put his knees on his chest as I'm lifting him up. And then I'd bounce him off his knees as we'd go down. And then I'd German suplex. Boom. Oh, you know, shit. <laughs> that, that move was over. I can't believe I haven't seen it on TV yet. <laughs> it sounds amazing, but um, yeah, yeah, no, go fuck yourself is a fantastic insult because usually when you say it to someone, there's not really much of a comeback afterward. Um, yeah, <laughs> but Johnny the Bull Stamboli, this is so great for me because it's obviously, as I said earlier, a, a coming full circle kind of story for me. I got to interview Doug Basham. I got to interview you. You guys were so nice and patient with us when we were, you know, teenagers, just so excited to see WWE was in town that we never forgot it. We always go, oh man, remember we met Johnny the Bull Stamboli and he like sat, the, you know, he stood there for 10 minutes and just answered all of our stupid questions and now all these years later you got to answer all these other stupid questions from me so well you never I, know like what you what kind of experience like a kid has when you meet him you know like i forget the guy's name he was a, recently he's a heavyweight champion at some point at AEW. i forget the guy's name or kenny omega probably, maybe it was kenny omega who else has been the champion there? John Moxley, Chris Jericho. I think they're the only three champions they've had. It was it was one of them, and they said the the first experience they had with wrestling, and I I was I thought this was awesome because you never know how you know you know how it's going to affect a kid later in life. Was that he saw he said he saw Johnny the Bull walk out of the of the go position to the ring and he was just shredded and in shape and he saw he saw me and that's when he wanted to be in wrestling so that's nice. and this was the heavyweight at aew i can't remember his name now i think it may have been omega i just saw the video and i was like wow you know that you never know the effect that you have on people especially if you're nice you just take a second to talk to them so absolutely yeah, you never know. Like, uh, you might not even be aware of it, but you just inspired someone that you probably never even met or spoke to. And all of a sudden, years later, you hear this story. That's an incredible. Anyway. Uh, yeah, man. Yeah. Um, but, bro, like, uh, to just sign off on this episode, this interview here, um, I just wanted to say, like, how much I appreciated your work over the years. And, you know, again, you spending that time with me and my friends. And from the most isolated city in the world, Perth, Western Australia, you had three nerdy teenage guys always going like this all over the place. And, you know, if teacher turns their back after telling us off, we always be like that to them. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, you know, you should be so proud of what you accomplished in the business because you got to be on TV during the height of wrestling. There's a reason why you had that opportunity. There's a reason why you were a world tag team champion, hardcore champion on TV with the WWE, on TV with WCW. You should be so proud. I want you on cloud nine after this to know that all the way over here, so many people appreciated you, my friend. That means a lot. That means a lot, especially, you know, as far, like you said, the most isolated city um, in the world, but it's a beautiful city. And the Australian girls were amazing. I had a lot of fun with them. (laughs) <laughs> i'm glad to I, they, they 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 i love their accent and they love my accent so <laughs> it was easy you know what i remember and and i will finish this interview off soon but i remember on that um uh passport to smackdown tour we had gone back to the casino after the show to see if we could meet anyone else and i remember seeing in the distance Luther Reigns, aka Horseshoe, walking with two girls back to his room. So. Yeah, yeah, sounds about right. Sounds about right. Well, thank you again, Johnny. I really appreciate your time today, sir. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. You should try to get all three FBI members, WWE FBI members, on at the same time. We could do a interview. That would be fun. That would be awesome. I'll talk to you about that up off the air. All right. Thanks, bro. And thank you, everyone out there, for watching the Insider's Edge podcast here on the WCWA Network. I'm your host with the most on the West Coast, Californian Fury, and we will see you next time. Thank you.